is 1 Kings 15. Um, it's on page 355 of the Bibles. It's quite a long reading, so I suggest you follow along. Um, we're starting at verse 1, which is uh, at the top right-hand column. So 1 Kings 15, starting at verse 1. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His mother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. As for the other events of Abijah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam, and Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. And Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 41 years. His grandmother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Maacah, from her position as queen mother, because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. <coughs> he, brought, <coughs> excuse me, he brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad 
agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. He conquered Aijon, Dan, Abel Bathmerka, and all Kinnereth in addition to Naphtali. When Baashar heard this, he stopped building Ramah and withdrew to Tirzah. Then King Asa issued an order to all Judah. No one was exempt, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Baashar had been using there. With them, King Asa built up Jebar in Benjamin and also Mizpah. As for all the other events of Asar's reign, all his achievements, all he did and the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. Then Asar rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of his father David. And Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. We'll continue it later. Okay, so if you want to find where we left off, on page 356, we're at the bottom of the left-hand column, verse 25. Uh, we're going to read to the end of, the, of that chapter and then uh, skip ahead, but I'll, uh, don't worry, I'll tell you where we're going. So, uh, 1 Kings 15... Verse 25. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asar, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Baashah, son of Ahijah from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Baashar killed Nadab in the third year of Asar, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. As for the other events of Nadab's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? There was war between Asar and Baashar, the king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Okay, we're going to jump now to, uh, onto the next page, page uh, 357, at the bottom right, verse 29 of uh, chapter 16, right at the bottom of the right-hand column there, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asar, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, 
and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Good morning from me. It's great to see you. I'm uh, the Reverend Bob Marsden. I'm the minister here for visitors who don't know me. Can I say thank you to Helen for reading those names? Uh, she wonderfully pronounced it as Bayashar. I've been calling him Basha all week in my preparation. So if I slip into that, please uh, forgive me. Uh, let's pray together with uh, these scriptures open. And I want to read from Romans 15 that help us to understand how we are to read these Old Testament scriptures. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so we ask our gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you'd help us to understand these scriptures correctly as fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming and to be fulfilled fully and finally when he returns in glory. And please help us to have hope in him, to be encouraged and to endure as we look to the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do have 1 Kings 15 open. And I wonder if you were asking, and I bet there were many people, what is the holy God doing amidst all this sin and evil? Here are chapters that are full of conspiracy, war, political intrigue, rivalries, drunkenness, assassination, and a dramatic suicide, which we didn't read about. Can I encourage you to read about it during this week? Here is the 24-hour news cycle absolutely having a field day. And Hollywood would make an epic film out of these horrible events. Of course, it raises many questions, doesn't it? But think of the uncertainty of in our world today. Conspiracy, war between nations, political intrigue, rivalries, drunkenness, assassination, jealousies. That is the world that we live in. And I put a question at the top of my outline. Will Jesus keep his promise to end all sin and evil one day and establish his perfect kingdom fully and finally. To put it in terms of 
the time of the scriptures that we're reading about, will his people eat and drink and be happy and be at peace? In 2 Peter 3, I put this on my outline, we read these words. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own sinful desires, their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Will everything always go on as it has since the beginning of creation? What evidence do we have that God will stand by his promises when nothing in the world really seems to change or indeed things seem to get worse? Of course we make extraordinary advances in healthcare or in this and that. But the world that we read about here in 1 Kings 15 and 16 is not really very different from our world. We're just a bit more sophisticated and we once put people on the moon. Now God's word to us in 1 Kings and 2 Kings is to strengthen faith in Jesus and to give us hope. This is the history of these small kingdoms of Israel and Judah, from the 10th century BC to the 6th century BC, let me say, of course, what makes these stories even worse is that they are about God's Old Testament people and the leaders of God's Old Testament people. How do God's people descend into such sin and idolatry? It is shocking. And then we look at the church in the West and we see similar disobedience and spiritual decline. And we know our own hearts, the ability of our own hearts to be unfaithful, to be tempted and so on. I'll put a question there. Has God deserted his church in the Western world? Can we still know his blessing? So I want to say this morning that in the midst of all this conspiracy, civil war, political intrigue, drunkenness, assassination, spiritual disobedience and decline, these stories should strengthen our faith in Jesus, challenge our obedience and renew our hope in Jesus. Yes, Even from these stories, we're to know blessing in and through Jesus. And the first thing I want us to see is that God promises his king to bless his people. I want to keep stressing this, that we must understand this history of Israel in the light of the coming of Jesus the Christ, that is God's promised king, his chosen king. The Old Testament is the story of God's promises to bless sinners like you and me. We're all sinners deserving of God's judgment. It is a world of sin, a world that is not right, 
because of our sin and rebellion. But God promises to reverse the effects of our sin and rebellion. And in Genesis, remember, he promises to Abraham that a great people would know his blessing in a promised land. And that blessing would be for all nations. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises to David a king in his family line, and this king will build a house for the name of the Lord, and his kingdom will be established forever. A kingdom that will last forever. Now, under King Solomon, we read these words. I've put them down on the sheet. 1 Kings 4 verse 20. Here is a world that we'd love to live in, isn't it? The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as sand on the seashore. They ate and drank and were happy. That would be a great manifesto for the next general election, isn't it? We'll make you, you'll eat, you'll drink and you'll be happy. More than that, actually, in King Solomon's time, there was peace. A numerous people in a peaceful land. You see, it's the promise to Abraham being fulfilled. And then, of course, it all goes badly wrong. King Solomon is indulgent in many sinful ways. He worships self and sex and money. Sounds like the sins of today, doesn't it? And clearly, he is not the king to bring in God's perfect kingdom that will last forever. And Solomon's reign, as we've seen in recent weeks, leads to civil war between his sons Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and you get the kingdom divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The blessing is disappearing. Now let me say these are dark chapters. But the writer wants us to see that God's promise to David is held by the kings of Judah. That was the promise to the kings of Judah in the south. In the north, actually, there were still actually great promises for them, as we saw when we looked at Jeroboam. And in the first part of chapter 15, yes, we're coming to this now, we read of Abijah, the king of Judah, and we read this in verse 1. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. Now look on to verse 3. Look at the writer's comment. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. So King Abijah is a bad king. It's very easy, um, as we read this, bad king, good king. I I will say a bit more about that. And we might ask, as we read about Abijah, why doesn't God just say, it's finished? Draw a line under the whole thing. I'll go for plan B. But you see, God has set his purpose and plan in two great promises, and there are others in the Old Testament. His kingdom will come through his chosen king, 
through this family line of Judah, and he'll bring blessing. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, note that, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave Abijah a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. You see, see that phrase? Nevertheless, for David's sake. In other words, because God has made a promise to David. The lamp of God's promise will keep burning. Look at verse 5. For David had done what is right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the the Hittite. Now, Now we look at that and think, wow. David often did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But we'll know, we know, don't we? It it gives the comment, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, that was adultery and murder. But David repented. God delights in the repentance of sinners. He delights in the repentance of sinners, the genuine repentance of sinners. But I want to see the kings of Judah are measured against King David David's line is God's purpose, his unshakable purpose. God is faithful to his covenant promises. Sin and disobedience can't stop God bringing blessing. God has decided, and he will keep his promise. Then secondly, let's see God sees the king who... I put wrongly, actually, nearly pleases him. (laughs) That's actually not what the inspired scripture says. Well, you make a judgment. King Asa begins to reign in Judah. And look what we read in verse 11. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. Now, just look at that phrase, in the eyes of the Lord. It will come again and again through these chapters. The Lord sees everything. I don't know if you've been to London Euston Station uh, in the last year, but they've been redoing the concourse on London Euston. Uh, looks super. I counted 20 cameras. They're not going to miss anything or anybody coming through London Euston. Almighty God sees everything. Yes, even our innermost thoughts. You and I can't hide from him just as these kings can't hide from the true God. Now let me say that Asa seems to measure up well as David had done. Uh, Asa expels the male shrine prostitutes. You can see this in verse 12 and verse 13. Uh, Sinful people often love to mix sexual indulgence with worship, and God hates that. Asa throws out the idols. God, yes, God hates our idols and wants us to get rid of them. Asa even gets rid of those in his family who promote idols. Verse 14, although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. So you see, God sees the king whose heart is, well, yes, fully devoted, but 
He's not perfect, is he? He doesn't remove the high places. Verse 16, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. And we're meant to note that. There's no blessing of peace now, is there? Just more war between Judah and Israel. And then it seems to me as we go over the page, there are two more mistakes. Ben-Hadad was a pagan king, and he rules to the north of Israel. And Asa down south wants Ben-Hadad to attack Israel from the north or to create some problems, to take the pressure off Asa in the south. So Asa makes an alliance with a pagan king. All sorts of alarm bells should begin to ring. Verse 18, Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tibramon, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between you and me, and here's the gold. Sounds like a bribe, doesn't it? Asa makes an alliance with a pagan king and he uses the gold from the Lord's temple and his own palace. Now much gold had come from other nations that Israel had defeated. But do you see what's happening here? The gold is going back to the pagan nations. A reversal of God's blessing. The gold from the temple, which has signified the glory of God's presence, is now going way up north to, in a treaty with a pagan king. And then in verse 23, just look at this. I'm going to read from... As for all the other events of Asa's reign, all his achievements, all he did and the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, (laughs) his feet became diseased. This week, my right, actually for two weeks, my right foot has been painful and I think it is arthritis. Could be gout, but I don't drink red wine. Now, why does the narrator put in that? The writer wants us to know he had diseased feet. Constant war, gold returned, diseased feet in the king. Where is God's king who will bring blessing to his people? Then thirdly, God sees the kings who don't please him. In verse 25, if you look down, you see we move from Judah to Israel. And as I've said, this chapter has it all. Please do read it. We read of six kings, Nadab, Basha, Ella, Zimri, Omri, and Ahab, and it is a horror show. Hollywood would not know whether to make this an epic tragedy or a horror show of bad kings of Israel. Somebody said to me beforehand, 
Um, and I, you know, we, it'd be really good, you know, I don't like the way we skip over these kings. I'm sorry, we're not going to look at every single one. But do read it this week. But look at King Nadab. I want us to see these are the kings that don't please God. Look at verse 25. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. And then the writer gives us the God-inspired commentary He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Then look at Baasha, verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel in Tizar and he reigned 24 years he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam and causing and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to sin, to commit. You see, Jeroboam is the yardstick, the measure of these kings of Israel, like father, like son. And notice I mean, God is not pleased by sin. We do need to keep saying that in our day and age where we don't want to talk about sin enough. He is even more displeased when the sin of leaders leads others into sin. Now, we're not kings, are we? But we have responsibilities, spiritual responsibilities in different ways in our families, in our churches. Now, these kings are a bit like the driver of a bus. Wherever the driver goes, the people on the bus go. And here, the king leads the people into sin. Now, of course, the people should say, we're not going the right way. This isn't the right way to go. Or you're driving this bus very carelessly. Of course, that's what we need to do when church leaders want to lead people into sin. We mustn't sit at the back of the bus and say, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, these kings, King Ella, King Zimri, he's the one who pulls down the palace which is on far on top of him, presumably to make sure that his rival does not get a nice palace. King Omri, you can see him there. And they all do evil in the eyes of the Lord and lead the people into sin. Please read about it this week. But Ahab is the worst. Bottom right, verse 29. Ahab. Ahab, verse 30, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, just trivial, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Worship of self, 
worship of sex. Baal worship was sexually indulgent. The worship of money. And uh, it's extraordinary isn't it, that sin has become trivial to him. Do we have any sense of sin before the Holy God? In our nation, in our church? Now the writer of 1 Kings writes for God's Old Testament people who've been sent into exile in Babylon in the 6th century. He's recording from the 10th century to the 6th century and this was written to remind them what had gone wrong and that the Lord is faithful to his covenant promises. That sin and disobedience cannot stop God's loving purpose to bless all who turn to him and trust him. And he will bless. He will bless. That's his great covenant promise. So God's king in the line of David would come. Just look on the sheet I've put this verse. God would send his one and only son to be born to a family in the line of David. Isn't this a marvelous verse? John 8 verse 29. Jesus says, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases the Father. Jesus always did what pleased the Father. He is the perfect king, the chosen king, the promised king, the fulfillment of that promise to David. And when God the Father looks at his son, he sees no evil, only his perfect obedience. The only time that God the Father sees anything different is when his son is bearing your sin and my sin upon himself. In his perfect obedience, he goes all the way to death on the cross to bring us blessing. You see, we might ask, where is the promise in all these dark chapters? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is the place where he brings blessing again. The blessing of forgiveness of sins. Bearing our sins upon himself so that we can be forgiven. He is raised from the dead to show that death has been defeated and we can have eternal life. He blesses us with freedom. Freedom to know who we genuinely are, not what the world wants to keep on falsely imposing on us. He gives us the blessing of his spirit to change us and transform us. And our perfect king always leads his people in the ways of righteousness and truth. You want a leader in life, commit your life to King Jesus. And of course we need to remember therefore we belong to another king and another kingdom. And our city is not the earthly city, but the heavenly city. And the nations are streaming to that city as the gospel goes out. Yes, we can know his blessing 
even amidst all the sin and evil. His kingdom has not come fully and finally yet, has it? But the promise is that it will. It's absolutely guaranteed. But I think there's one more thing for us to see and learn. That's fourthly this, that God works by his word in the midst of evil. Right through this chapter, (laughs) indeed we're going to see this, you can see this right through 1 Kings, the word of the Lord comes four times in chapter 16, uh, well, these chapters. Just look at chapter 15, verse 29. Sorry, four times in, in this section. Five, 15, 29. Just go back. As soon as Nadab began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. We're shocked by that. He did not leave Jeroboam, anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Remember from last week the prophecy that had been given that God would judge Jeroboam and his family because of his sin. And wicked King Nadab kills Jeroboam's family according to the word of the Lord. And then uh, Basha too is subject to the word of the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, Jehu son of Hanani, concerning Basha. And just to tell you what happens, he too is judged. That God is at work by his word to judge sin and evil. Or turn on, sorry, over the page Please do read the rest of this. Verse 34, just to the end again. I want us to see this at the end of chapter 16. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. So Joshua uh, had led the people into the promised land and Jericho was the first city in the promised land. It was given by a mighty act of the Lord and there'd been a prophecy that it should never be rebuilt. But now disobedient King Ahab allows it to be rebuilt by heel of Bethel. And in doing so, the prophecy is fulfilled. He loses his two sons. Lots of questions, aren't there? But I want us to see this. It is a reversal, again, of what God has been doing. Joshua led into the land and now Ahab is leading them out of God's blessing and under his judgment. God works by his word in the midst of evil and he judges evil by his word. Now we might have lots of questions about this that God uses evil to advance his good purposes and to bring judgment. That is basic Bible theology. 
The Lord brings his judgment on those who carry out his judgment. He will judge nations and individuals for the unjust manner they carry out his just judgment. I want to say again, that is basic Bible theology. Look at what I put down from the teaching of Jesus because Jesus taught it and believed it from Mark 14 verse 21 because it's at the cross that we see this most clearly. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. In other words, go to his death. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. As it is written, the death of Jesus is a matter of God's sovereign plan as revealed in his word. It must happen. This is God's good and loving purpose. But wicked men assist that plan and are responsible. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. And it is awful. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. God rules this world by his word. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that the Son sustains all things by his powerful word. He's not a little God. And the word of God directs all of history. It may look as if chaos reigns, or even that human beings shape events. C.S. Lewis once famously said about the sovereign control of God, he's not a twig that can be snapped under our feet or a leaf that can be blown out of our path. The word of the Lord is still the power behind everything that happens in this world. Rulers come, rulers go, powers rise, powers fall. Don't be surprised if God uses Western countries to humble an arrogant murderer, President Putin. Don't be surprised if God uses President Putin to humble a godless, disobedient, indulgent Western world. God's promise is that his word will always triumph over evil. What's the one certainty in this world? It is the word of the Lord, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So can I ask us this morning, are we repenting of our sin? What a warning here there is about sin and idols. Yes, in God's Old Testament people, when God speaks his word of judgment, repent. As 2 Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then let's rejoice in the certainty of God's word, his promise to bless. Yes, we can trust God's promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can know his wonderful blessing. Isn't that glorious this morning? His wonderful blessing, full of extraordinary spiritual riches. Wonderful blessings for us to enjoy this week as Jesus is our Saviour. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that uh, your word and the promises of your Son, they are the one certainty in this world. Thank you for this reminder that you're in sovereign control of all that happens, that nothing lies outside your control. Indeed, that the Lord Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word, a word of grace and mercy, a word of judgment. And Father, we're reminded here that these are your Old Testament people and we hear the challenge to us as those who are your people through the death and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to heed these warnings. Please strengthen us not to be led into sin by false teachers. Please help us to put to death our sinful nature this week. And above all, thank you so much that you're the God of blessing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the blessings of forgiveness of sin, of peace with you, the living God, of justification before you, that we're no longer condemned. We thank you for the blessing of your love for adoption into your family. We thank you for the glorious hope that one day we will come to the new creation where there are no diseased feet. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to sing.